Those are indeed sobering words uh, from the prophet Samuel as he gives to Saul the news that his kingship is being removed from him. You know, Saul started out pretty modest and humble in those early chapters. Remember chapters 9 and 10 and 11? When he was first informed by Samuel that he was going to be king, he responded with kind of an unfeigned modesty. Am I, a, am I not a Benjaminite, the least of the tribes of Israel? And then you remember during his coronation in chapter 10, after the identity of the new king had been made known to the people, a strangely embarrassing moment kind of happened where Saul, the chosen one, all of a sudden couldn't be found. He was hiding among the military baggage. Unlike someone long preparing to assume power, Saul didn't move swiftly to exploit the momentum of his coronation and seek to consolidate his authority in Israel. Rather, the public coronation that happened in chapter 10 ended kind of anticlimactically. He just returned home, we read at the end of chapter 10. Yet, We come to chapter 14, verses 47 and 48, and we read the following. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who had plundered them. Quite the opposite here. And then we see in verse 52 the following words. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached them to himself. Is this not what Samuel said would happen? 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 11. These will be the ways of the king over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. That's what Saul's doing. He's taking and taking and taking. Then in chapter 15, we read these sobering words. Verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Samuel came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. How do we get there from where we began? We know that there were the seeds of his fall present in chapters 9 to 11, and they were revealed in Samuel's warnings in chapter 8 and chapter 12. But this morning we're going to turn our attention to chapters 13 to 15, where we will see how this originally unassuming, modest person, who first had power thrust upon him, is now seized by the power that had descended upon him unsought. These chapters tell us What was responsible, ultimately, for Saul's failures? And just to summarize, it was his lack of adherence to God's Word. His unwillingness to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. This shows up in four different ways in our chapters this morning. We're going to look at Saul's flaws, the things that led to his downfall, and our flaws, and the things that can lead to ours unless we be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first flaw. Saul failed to wait for God's word. Saul failed to wait for God's word. Now, as we walk through 
these four points in these three chapters, I just want to give you a heads up on two things. First of all, you're going to see a contrast in every single one of these points. And I think it's one of the most interesting thing about these three chapters. Saul should be doing all these things that someone else has ended up doing. We're going to see Saul contrasted with his son Jonathan and Samuel himself and how it seems that people other than Saul are doing the things the king ought to be doing. So we're going to see that contrasted throughout each one of these points. And secondly, we're going to spend most of our time on the fourth point. So we're going to fly through, I hope, these first three relatively quickly. So here's the first point in chapter 13. Saul failed to wait for God's word. I want you to notice, first of all, that the chapter doesn't begin with Saul. It begins with Jonathan. It begins with a mounting Philistine threat against Israel. And we read in chapter 13, verses 2 through 4, the following. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to follow along there with me. First Samuel 13, 2 to 4. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul chooses 3,000 soldiers. But it's Saul's son, Jonathan. We're told that he's Saul's son in verse 16. We're not told here. But it's Saul's son that initiates the battle by attacking a Philistine outpost with only a third of the army, a 1,000 men. And while Saul ultimately gets credit for it, it was Saul's son that evidently initiated this Why didn't Saul take the initiative? Why didn't the king go out before Israel and fight her battles like chapter 8 verse 20 said that they would? Instead, Jonathan is the one who does it. Well, what's the result? Look at verses 5 to 7. We read, The one, 13, 5 to 7, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude, they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethhaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So to this assault that Jonathan initiated upon the Philistines, to this attack, the Philistine army responds and they gather their troops, numbering as many as the sand on the seashore that we're told compared to Israel's mere 3,000. And in response, we're told that the Israelites are terrified and they begin to hide out. And Israel's clearly struck with fear, in part because their commander is nowhere to be found. He's in Gilgal, far away from the place of battle. That's Jonathan's success, his initiative, his initiative taking and at least leading this, but then the people begin to lose heart knowing that their own commander is not even with them. Notice Saul's failure here in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering 
here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the word, the Lord, your God, which with which you, he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So as the Philistine attack looms on the horizon, Saul gets impatient. And Samuel's supposed to come, but he's delayed. And so Saul had had been told in chapter 10, verse 8, not to make any move until Samuel gave him the word of the Lord. Samuel was the prophet. He was the one sent to give God's word to the king. And Saul's job was to wait for the word of the Lord to come. But as Saul sees his men beginning to scatter, he does something he isn't supposed to do. He offers sacrifices himself, which is something only a priest could do. And just as he finishes, Samuel arrives and confronts him and announces that the kingdom is going to be taken away from his family. Saul's problem is that he did not wait for God's word. He acted as though God would not act. What's, what happened as a result? We'll look at verse 16, where we read, And Saul and Jonathan, his son, the people who were present with him, stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So what began as 3,000 men in Israel is reduced to 600, and even those soldiers have no weapons. Only Saul and Jonathan have a sword or a spear. The troops are demoralized. The weapons are unobtainable. The raiders are freeloading off of Israel, and Saul is on his own, having been left by Samuel. All because he did not wait to hear the word of the Lord. Dear ones, how does this show up in our lives? Do you ever fall into sins of expediency where we feel like we have no choice but to sin? A pregnant woman must have an abortion because how else will she complete her education? Or a spouse must get a divorce despite no presence of adultery or abandonment. A student must cheat on a test or copy homework because they have to make a good grade, right? Single woman, single man must marry this person. We don't know who else might come along. These sins of expediency can often trip us up as well because we fail to wait upon God. 
Secondly, not only did Saul fail to list or fail to wait on God's word, but secondly, Saul failed to trust in God's word. Notice again, we're going to move back to Jonathan and see how he succeeds in the place of Saul. Look at the first three verses of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran. Again, Saul, nowhere to be found. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Hittub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So Jonathan again is on the move. Saul is sitting. And notice who remains with Saul. Ahelia, one of Eli's sons, Phinehas, was so corrupt that it led to Israel's defeat in chapter 2. Ichabod was so named because he was born, remember, on the day that the ark was captured by the Philistines. Saul had just had his dynasty rejected by Samuel, and he's with a priest whose family has been rejected as well. This is not good. With Samuel gone, Saul is left without a prophetic voice in his life. So while Saul stays where he was, Jonathan engaged the Philistines. Jonathan is outnumbered against the Philistines, and he has to advance up a steep cliff, yet he's not at all shaken. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. What's the result? Well, Jonathan's faith is echoed in his armor bearer's response, and so they hatch a plan. Jonathan believes that God is able to intervene, but to determine whether God is willing to intervene, they decide that if the Philistines invite him up, then that's a sign that God's going to hand them over. And then notice what happens in verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan, his armor bearer, had made, killed about 20 men. Within it were half a furrow's length in the acre of a land, of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrisons and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So Jonathan kills 20 soldiers, and that's enough to send the Philistines into a panic because God was behind it. But notice Saul's failure. Verse 16, And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Uh-oh. Here, Saul shows his tendency to rely on religious ritual to gain God's favor rather than to trust and obey the word of the Lord like Jonathan did. Despite the fact that the last time this happened, in chapter 4, verse 4, it led to Israel's defeat. Far from bringing hope to Israel, Saul is repeating Israel's sins. What's the result? Verse 19. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. 
Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with him into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So Paul, Saul's foolish... So what we're going to see is that our, the responsibility of Saul here is that he was to know Deuteronomy 17 or here, while the good result we ought not to give, there's a good result here, but we ought not to give Saul too much credit, right? He responded the way he did because things were going so well because of what Jonathan had initially accomplished. And ultimately, the credit doesn't go to Saul and it doesn't go to Jonathan. Who does it go to? The Lord. It says the Lord saved Israel that day. We're specifically told who's responsible for this deliverance, and it isn't Saul. It isn't even Jonathan. Dear ones, in what ways are we, like Saul, tend to fail to trust the word of the Lord and look to other things, spiritual rituals, religious things to gain God's favor? Do we engage in spiritual transactions like Saul gave to curry his favor? Do we believe that we must have everything under control before we can really trust God? Are we willing to venture out in faith like Jonathan, to see if God is willing to work on our behalf? How about sharing that gospel, sharing the gospel with a neighbor or a family member or making that hard decision as a parent when you don't know how things are going to go or confront that injustice in your workplace? Or are we going to wait till the outcome looks a little more certain before we trust God? If we do... We're committing the same kind of evil that Saul does, failing to trust in God's word. Thirdly, Saul failed to instruct from God's word. Saul failed to instruct from God's word. Look at his failure again, beginning in verse 24. We know that one responsibility of the king from Deuteronomy 17 is that they would study the word of the Lord and that they would know it and live according to it so that they might instruct the people in it. But we read in verse 24 the following. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I, have avenged on my, I am avenged on my enemies. Since the battle's not finished, Saul makes this rash vow that no one is allowed to eat anything until the battle is over. He's requiring more from his men than God did. He's dreaming up guidelines that God never laid upon them. Here's Saul's great leadership on display. Nothing better to fight strong Philistines with than weak Israelites. Nevertheless, because the king has issued the vow, the soldiers refuse to eat. What's the result? Well, we read in verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Hajlon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with 
the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating the blood with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. So Saul's foolish order to not eat during the battle has led the Israelites into further sin. Famished with hunger, they begin eating some of the livestock that they have plundered. Yet their hunger led them to not prepare the food properly and they were eating it basically raw with the blood still in it, which was forbidden by God. First of all, as we're going to see in chapter 15, they weren't supposed to plunder them. That was disobedience to God. Because their engaging in warfare was not an act of imperialism. It was an act of judgment on the neighboring nations that had sinned against the Lord. But here, Saul's unwise instruction led to military exhaustion, which led to spiritual transgression on the part of the people. It was ultimately Saul's responsibility because he didn't feed his troops or at least allow them to eat. Now, what did Jonathan do? Look in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 14 where we read his response. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Curse be the man who eats food this day. The people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I've tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they, have, that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Once again, Saul disobeys, or Jonathan disobeys Saul's human order. It's not God's word. It's a human order. Samuel realizes how foolish it is. And as a result, instead of abstaining, Jonathan eats and he was off attacking a Philistine outpost and never even received the order to begin with. And yet even when he's told, he disregards it because of how foolish it is. And what's the result? Well, Saul wants to continue pursuing the Philistines through the night, but he is persuaded to first seek the Lord. But God doesn't answer. No one, not one for self-reflection, Saul assumes that this is someone else's fault. So he, he calls the people together to cast lots. Why isn't the Lord listening to me? We need to determine who's responsible for this. And the lot falls to Jonathan and Saul, indicating their culpability. So here's Saul horrified. Look at verse 43. 13, chapter 14, verse 43, where we read, Then Jonathan said, Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who's worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it! People rebelling against their king. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he's worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Here's a horrified Saul 
who could not stand his troops eating the blood of animals, intending to shed the blood of his own son. And then Israel intercedes and demands that he be spared since they know who saved him. It wasn't Saul. It was Jonathan. What about us, dear ones? While we're not prone to make these sort of rash decisions in battle, none of us are commanders of military armies, but nevertheless, are are we not prone to speak uncarefully, not being slow to speak, not being quick to listen, before making promises or making assertions? Is our counsel to each other in the church marked by care, making sure that we tell others what God has said and not just what we think? And even if we do tell them what we think, do we make sure we let them know it's what we think and not what God says? So we've seen here several seeds present of Samuel leading t- t- or Saul's eventual fall here in his interactions with both Samuel and Jonathan failed to wait for God's word failed to instruct from God's word he failed to trust in God's word fourthly and finally he failed to listen to God's word and this is in chapter 15 this is really the capstone because in this chapter it's official Saul's kingship is over Samuel had said in verse 13, chapter 13, look, the kingdom's not going to continue in your family, beyond your family. But here, he's saying your kingdom is extended beyond you. It's done after this. What did he do? Well, Samuel commands Saul and the armies of Israel in chapter 15 to thoroughly destroy another group of people that are in deep-seated sin against God, the Amalekites. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now this text if you're thinking correctly and oriented rightly, should raise some questions for you. How in the world can God command a people to go kill another people? I mean, didn't this just prove that the God of the Old Testament is unjust? That he's evil? No, it's not. To be clear, and the text makes it clear, this is justice, not injustice. The Amalekites are being punished for what they did to Israel when Israel was coming out of Egypt. Now, what did they do when Israel was coming out of Egypt? Well, in Exodus 17, we're told that Amalek had attacked Israel at their most vulnerable. They weren't even prepared for war. They hadn't even gotten to Sinai yet. And Moses' own commentary in the book of Deuteronomy shows that this was a dirty attack. I'll give you Moses' commentary. In Deuteronomy 25, remember, Moses said, what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those of you who were lagging behind and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you the rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This is God fulfilling that word. So for this reason, Israel was called to wipe them out. 
But lest we mistake that this is just the present generation being punished for the sins of their ancestors, the text makes clear that their own generation is culpable. The Amalekites haven't changed over the years. In verse 18, we're told that they're still sinners and their king is responsible in verse 33 for great war crimes. So I consider it a great mercy that God gave them 300 years to repent, don't you? They had 300 years to get this right. And God waited patiently for them to do it and they continued to sin. This is a demonstration of God's mercy. Far from being a demonstration that he's unjust, far from being a problem, this account is full of the loving kindness and patience of God toward people that have provoked him continually to anger. But the Amalekites aren't the only sinners here. So is Saul. And his disobedience is clear. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15, where we read, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. What did God command back in the first three verses? You were not to profit a cent off of this. This is not imperialism, Saul. This is justice. But Saul adopted the imperialism of the nations. He was becoming a king like the nations. He failed to make Israel a light to the nations by being a people who didn't just prey upon other people's stuff to get it. And so he's behaving exactly like the kings around him behave. It's one thing not to listen to God's word. It's another thing altogether to not see anything wrong with it. And Saul doesn't see anything wrong with it. Look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, Saul said to him, Blessed be the Lord, by the, by, be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel doesn't agree. Look at verse 18. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul essentially, Samuel essentially says, why didn't you listen to God? Why didn't you listen to what I said? But Paul, look, Saul doubles down. Look at verse 20. And Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I go, I've gone on the mission of the Lord. I've, I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Samuel says, well, you listened, but you didn't listen. Look at verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He blame shifts. It's the people's fault. Because Samuel says, why do I hear sheep? And he says, oh, the, the, they did it. The people did it. It's got nothing to do with my decision, Samuel. Don't single me out. The soldiers were doing it too. It's like he's been caught shoplifting. 
And he says, look, I mean, come on, come on, come on. It's in a big deal. I mean, lots of people steal things. Sometimes they even use guns. I don't have a gun. He did the same thing in chapter 13. He's been blame shifting for three chapters. Look at chapter 13, verse 11. When Saul confronts him, or Samuel confronts him about his unrighteous sacrifice, we read in verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, it's your fault, Samuel. That the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, the Philistines' fault, Samuel. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I didn't really want to do it. I had to make myself do it. I mean, it was against my will. Dear ones, don't we all do this? But do we all understand that we are wrong to do this? Not only does he draw attention to what everyone else is doing, he also minimizes his sin by pointing to the sensibility of his own decision. We do this all the time. We say, well, I mean, yeah, but how are, I mean, there are other Christians in our church doing that. As though the standard were other Christians. He says, in effect, look, killing all those animals seemed like such a waste. Uh, so better to use them. That made sense. I mean, surely you can see, Samuel, that was the best thing to do under the circumstances. But common sense does not overrule God's commands. In fact, it's when God's word seems utterly unrealistic to us that we discover what we really obey or submit to. God's ways are our ways. And this isn't all he does. He doesn't just blame shift. He does it with an oh-so-pious religious air, doesn't he? Look at verse 21 of chapter 15 again. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He tried to cover his sin with pure motives. Look, I saved some of these oxen for the priesthood. Dear ones, covering up our disobedience in the veneer of godliness doesn't make it any less sinful. It makes it more sinful. He did the same thing in chapter 13, verse 12. Again, he says, sounding oh so religious. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. See, I did it because I needed to seek God. Look, I did it for God, Samuel. It may have technically been a sin, but my motives were good. I'm reminded of a story that Elizabeth Elliot shares, and I'll give it to you in its entirety here. It's a brief story, but it illustrates well how sometimes we can mask our disobedience in such a religious way. Elizabeth Elliot shares this story. My brother Tommy was allowed to do playing with the kitchen bags, but he was always told he had to put them away before he left the kitchen. He left all the paper bags in the kitchen on the floor. And this time my mother came and found he was not in the kitchen, but he was standing beside the piano where my father was playing some hymns. My mother said, Tommy, I want you to come put away the paper bags. Tommy looked up at mother with those beautiful eyelashes of his. He was about three three years old, I guess. And he said, but I want to sing Jesus Loves Me. Whereupon my father took it upon himself then to press home a very important lesson. It's no good being disobedient to your mother while you're singing the praises of God. To obey is better than sacrifice, my son. 
So, of course, little Tommy had to leave the piano, go to the kitchen, put those paper bags back where they belonged, to the, belonged in the drawer. A very good lesson for all of us. It is a very good lesson for all of us. Not only did Samuel or Saul blame shift, not only did he cloak it in a veil of religiosity, but he tries to draw Samuel's attention away from his sin onto what he has done well. He says, look, Samuel, I I spared Agag, but I destroyed everything else. I did everything else. I mean, I completed 95% of the mission. I almost mostly obeyed. How easy it is to excuse sin on the basis that we have not sinned in other ways. However, the writer of 1 Samuel knows better. This religiosity led him to sort of a pseudo-repentance in verses 24 and 25. But it's really self-pity. We're given insight into what's motivating Saul. He says, yeah, I did wrong, Samuel, but I was under a lot of pressure. Can we just forget about this and move on? Why all the fuss? He mentions his fear of the people. Fear of the people is a common underlying reason for sin. Just as Saul did, so we can fear the rejection of others and crave the approval of others. So we'll change our behavior or change our words based upon what will be acceptable to them. What it takes to fit in, what it takes to be accepted, what it takes to be affirmed. Perhaps this was just an excuse Saul was making, but really it makes no difference. Fear of others is no just justification for disobeying God. Last week I was reading one of the ordination sermons of Andrew Fuller. And in speaking to a new pastor, he said the following, quote, If we please God, we shall please all who love God. And as to others, they are not on any account worthy of being pleased at the expense of pleasing God. End quote. What does he mean? If Fuller were to speak to Saul, he'd say something like this. Saul, even if you were afraid of the people, their displeasure with you is not a reason for you to displease God. It is not worth sinning in the face of their sin. Samuel manifests such a Fuller-like posture with his response to Saul in verse 26. He says, I will not return with you. For you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Your sin is serious. It will cost you your kingdom. And what is Saul's main concern in all this? Look at verse 30. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. His main concern. My reputation's been tarnished. He's sorry for the consequences of his sin, but not the sin. He's sorry because of the bad things that are coming into his life and not the sin that led to the bad things. He's sorry that he's been caught. If the consequences were taken away, he'd be right back to it. So what happens? In response to Saul's failure, Samuel goes and finishes the job. In verses 32 and 33, he hacks Agag to pieces. And then we read, In verses 34 to 36, these final sad words. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The godly grieve. Samuel grieves. God grieves. Saul doesn't grieve other than over the consequences of his actions. What a tragic ending. 
Samuel departs from Saul once and for all, leaving him to himself. No prophet of the Lord in his life. No more counsel. No more commands. No more encouragement. When it comes to hearing God's voice in the future, Saul will be without the prophet who would deliver God's word to him. And some of you know the end of Saul's story and what he's doing and where he's sitting and with whom he's sitting. I'll spoil a little bit of the ending for you. Heads cut off. Only three people in Samuel have their heads cut off. Goliath, Dagon, Saul. Should tell you something about Saul. Should tell you something about us and the way God views our failure to listen to his word. How God feels about the way we don't wait on God's word. We don't trust in God's word. We don't instruct from God's word. We don't listen to God's word. Here's the question that I want to conclude with. How can we escape the thing that destroyed Saul? We're all like him in various ways. I am too. We fail to wait for, trust in, listen to the Lord. And as a result, we too have made a mess of things. Maybe you've made a mess of your marriage. Maybe you've made a mess of your family. Maybe you've made a mess of your parenting. Maybe you've made a mess of your relationships. Maybe you've made a mess of your work. And we deserve the death of the Amalekites at the hands of God. We deserve to be slaughtered and cut in pieces in wrath. But... In chapter 11, we read about Saul's activity to save Israel three times. And in chapter 14, the same word save shows up three more times, only this time it's applied to Jonathan. Jonathan became the savior of Israel, not Saul, and Saul almost had him killed. If you've been paying attention, the one who comes out of chapters 13 to 15 looking like royalty is not Saul, it's Jonathan. What a splendid king he would have made, huh? But because of Saul, he will never be afforded that opportunity. He is eminently suited for the kingship he will never have. But there is one who is. See, by human descent, we're cut off from the kingdom. Just like Jonathan was. No fault of our own in some sense. Adam did it. We're cut off. Any hope for us? Yes, a second Adam. Who would come and reestablish a kingdom and invite us into it? In the face of Saul's failures, both Jonathan and Samuel's success points us to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Our sin demands our death, but there is one who has come and borne the penalty of death in our place. Even as Jonathan broke a foolish rule... Jesus kept every one of God's rules and broke some of the Pharisees' foolish ones. Like eating heads of grain on the Sabbath. Right to the end, even though we were the ones who sinned. And like Samuel, who hacked Agag to pieces, our Lord Jesus Christ has defeated all of our enemies fully and finally. He's defeated sin and death and the grave and hell for all those who trust in Him. And to do it, He had to be hacked to pieces Himself. He had to be abandoned by his father like Saul was abandoned by Samuel. And far from being spared from death by the intercession of Israel as Jonathan was, Jesus gave himself willingly over to death for our sin. 
And just as Jonathan went down into a canyon to defeat the Philistines, going down one crag and up the other, going into a valley and coming out again, experiencing something of a figurative death and resurrection, so Jesus spent three days in the tomb before rising from death. And just as this act inspired the Israelites to come out of their caves, so the work of Jesus calls us up and out of spiritual death, granting eternal life to all those who will receive him as we gratefully follow in his footsteps. I want to conclude with the words of Charles Spurgeon who preached on this passage. And as I read his sermon on this text this week, I just wanted to let Spurgeon finish us out because he applies this text in a beautiful way both to us as believers and to those who are not yet believers. Here's what Spurgeon says. Saul had been commanded to slay utterly all the Amalekites and their cattle. But instead of doing so, he preserved the king and allowed his people to take the best. When called to account for this, he declared that he did it with a view to offering sacrifice to God. But Samuel met him at once with the assurance that sacrifices were no excuse for his direct rebellion. And in so doing, he altered his sentence, which is worthy to be printed in letters of gold and to be hung up before the eyes of the present generation, be it ever in your remembrance that to keep strictly in the path of our Savior's command is better than any outward form of religion. And to listen to his precepts with an attentive ear is better than to bring the fat of rams or any other precious thing to lay on his altar. Spurgeon says, I know, for instance, that some of you can see it to be your duty as believers to be baptized. If you feel it to be right and you do, do not do it, let me say to you that all the pretensions you make of attachment to Jesus and all the other actions which you may perform are nothing compared with the neglect of this. Possibly too, dear brother, there may be some evil habit in which you are indulging, dear sister, and which you excuse by the reflection, well, I'm always at the prayer meeting. I'm constantly at communion and I give so much of my money. I'm glad that you do these things, but oh, I pray that you give up that sin. I pray that you cut it to pieces and cast it away, for if you do not, all your show of sacrifice will be but an abomination. May I put this very earnestly to the members of this church and indeed to all of you who hope that you are followers of Christ? Is there anything that you're neglecting? Is there any sin in which you are indulging? Is there any voice of conscience to which you have turned a deaf ear? Is there one passage of Scripture which you dare not look in the face because you're living in neglect of it? Then let Samuel's voice come to you and seek, set him, seek, set him, let it set you to seeking for more grace, for to obey is better than sacrifice. But what if you're not yet his disciple, not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus? In the first place, God has given you the gospel. That command is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yet most people, instead of obeying God, want to bring him sacrifice. They suppose that their own way of salvation is much better than the Almighty can have. Therefore, they offer their fat of rams. This takes different forms, but is always the same principle. Yes, says another, but suppose I punish myself a good deal for all that I've done. I'll abstain from this. I'll deny myself that. I will give up that evil friend. If you have any evil, give it up. But when you have done so, do not rely on that. For this you ought to have done and not have left the other undone. God's command is believe. And if you would go about to sacrifice your lust till they die bleeding at your feet like the flock of sheep upon the altar, I must say to you as Samuel sternly said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. A final person says, well now, I'll give up all the things that my heart calls good and will not. That, will that not save me? No, it will not. When you made all this sacrifice, all, I, all, all you can say and all I can say is, 
to obey is better than sacrifice. Well, but I suppose I begin to attend a place of worship. Suppose I go very regularly as often as the doors are open. Suppose I go early to the evening service even. Suppose I attend every day in the week. Suppose I come to the Lord's Supper. Suppose I'm baptized. Suppose I go through with the thing and give myself thoroughly up to all outward observances. Will this not save me? No. Nor will it even help you get saved. These things will no more save you than husks will fill your hungry belly. It's not the husk you want. You want the kernels. And so, poor soul, you do not want external ceremonies. You want the inward substance. And you'll never get that except by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we respond? We respond by saying, praise the Lord that we have a king who listens to him. Praise the Lord that the Lord Jesus Christ, as Messiah, fully obeyed the Father. And as a result of coming under his kingship, we are given his righteousness by faith. We don't have to do what Saul did perfectly or lose our status in the kingdom because our king fulfilled it and he preserves our status in the kingdom. But because we're in the kingdom, we desire to listen. We desire to wait for. We desire to trust in. We desire to instruct from God's word. We desire to say, Lord, where are the areas in my life where I'm self-deceived, where I think I'm obeying you, but I'm really not. Lord, help me to see those areas because to obey is better than sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, it's been a bit like staring in a mirror this morning. We see Saul and part of us pities him and feels sorry for him and part of us is convicted by him. Because we realize we're a lot more like him than we thought. I know I am. A tendency to do things in my own wisdom without waiting on you. A tendency to not trust in you, but to trust in my own intuitions. A tendency to tell people what I think rather than what you've said. And a tendency to just fail to listen. To listen fully and obey completely and thoroughly. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for fulfilling the law for us. Thank you for working out a perfect righteousness for us. Thank you for being the king that always listened to God, that never failed in one aspect of anything that God required him to do, and therefore his kingdom has been established forever. And we thank you that we can trust in you and that through trusting in you, we are given your righteousness and our sins are forgiven. For any of those who are still thinking that they can do this thing on their own, Lord, would you help them to see the grievous sin that they have committed in not listening to the one command that you are making to them. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Lord, for those of us who are in your kingdom, who are listening, who want to listen better, who trust but don't trust as well as we want to, who instruct but don't instruct as well as we want to, we believe, help our unbelief. We want to listen. We want to obey. We pray that by your Spirit, you would fulfill this law in us as we walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.